0: Welcome this morning. Um, it's good to be with you guys today. Just, uh, I want to echo what Jen, Jen just said as well. Um, and uh, just to be, kind of make it clear for us, the the Living Gift campaign, what we're going to be doing in Haiti, uh, that will be our uh, kind of Christmas special initiative. Okay, so if you're wondering, like, what are we doing for the Advent season for Christmas? How are we? Uh, giving additionally and where is that going um, that's what we're going to do together so we're we're going to be tallying up kind of the total sum of what um, we as a church end up raising and hopefully uh, we're going to be we're going to have ways that you can share this campaign with other people that you know you may be may even want to encourage them uh, to utilize this as a way to give to you or your family instead of um, what they might normally get you so you know instead of Instead of giving me that gift card uh, to a store that I may or may not use until March, um, why don't you give me this instead and let's together make a real difference and, uh, and show the love of Jesus to people that really need a gift uh, during the, the holiday season. So, so that's what we're going to be doing together. Stay tuned for more uh, info on that. Uh, good morning. Welcome. It's good to be with you guys today. Uh, we are starting a new series today called Our King is Coming. And what we're doing is over the next four weeks from this, I mean, John already said this, but this is the first Sunday of Advent, um, which is crazy that it's here already. Um, and so over the next uh, several weeks from now up and leading to uh, Christmas Eve, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the coming of our King. And um, But we're going to be doing it a little bit differently this year. Um, I mentioned this several weeks ago, but uh, rather actually than looking at the birth narrative of the first time Jesus has come, we are going to be, over the next several weeks, looking at the last time that Jesus comes. Um, so we're actually going to be taking the time to look at the last three chapters, not of Matthew or Luke or John, uh, but Revelation. So we were in Revelation uh, earlier in the fall, and we're going to be kind of resuming that like 17 chapters later. Um, And and on the surface, this seems like a very strange thing to do during Advent, because Advent is about anticipating the arrival of Jesus, right? It's about a baby in a manger. And we're going to be looking not at a baby in a manger, but at, at a king on a throne, and that's actually what Christmas is about. Um, we've kind of made Jesus into this sweet little innocent, you know, innocuous thing. When really, uh, he does come in weakness, but it's through his weakness that he shows what kind of king he will become. Um, so, I, I, I want to say a couple things on the front end, because we're, we're, we're in a section of Revelation that gets misread all the time. And so I want to just say a couple things on the front end as we kind of move into revelation. This and, and, and I want to say what this series is not primarily. The, the, we're not doing this primarily to be an exhaustive study of the end times. Okay, so you're you're you, you know, we're we're not doing a study of eschatology or cosm cosmology or any other ologies that you think which and, and that means that you're we're going to get through this series and you're still going to go, I have questions still about what this means and what that means. I'm still There's still a mystery to me. And, and you know what? I'm going to have questions too. Uh, we're all going to have questions. In fact, if you, if, if you answer all the questions, if you think you have answers to all the questions after reading through the book of Revelation, you haven't read it correctly. <laughs> because it's supposed to be a, a mysterious thing. And sometimes we take the mystery out of it. So that's the first thing. The second thing we're not going to do is we're not going to do a contemporary study of revelation. Here's what I mean by that. We're not going to look through kind of the revelation in one hand and our news feed in the other and try to figure out, okay, who is the beast? Who is the whore? Who is the like? Who is the antichrist? Who? I mean, we're, we're, we're not going to be using it as a way to kind of filter what we see uh, in the news today. Because Revelation wasn't written for that reason. This series, and what we're going to do as we look at the last three chapters of Revelation, is that we're going, to, we're going to look at the final coming of our King. We're going to look at what Jesus looks like when He comes in His fullness, when the final Christmas is here. And we will look at what will be true of our world when He comes. Now here's the reason we're doing this at Advent is so that we can appreciate maybe with new eyes what the first coming actually meant and what it secures and what Jesus actually did when he arrived. Because the truth is we, we live in the space between Jesus' two arrivals. We live in the space between two Christmases. And so we have to, it's important then for us to ask this question, for us to orient our lives correctly. How do we live as people whose hope leads us to both live differently today, but also long for the world that's coming? And so we're looking at these two Christmases kind of together and what they mean together. And my hope throughout this uh, series is that we will realize in our heart of hearts just how much we yearn for Jesus to arrive. That, that we would get to Christmas Eve and we would just, it would be our heart's desire just to say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Now, where are we going to begin? We're actually going to begin with something that sounds a lot like bad news. Um, because that's where we have to begin. Uh, we're going to be in Revelation verse uh, chapter 20. And we're going to be in the second half of it. So you can go all the way to the back of the the book if you're going to look at the Bibles that we've got in the seats and just flip back a couple pages to chapter 20 and we're going to be looking at verses 17 to 15. And it's all about Jesus as the final judge. So if you're a visitor this morning, welcome. (laughs) I think there's good news here. This is what it says. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, John, who's the author here, he envisions a day when Jesus returns to the world that he created and he's revealed in this moment as the world's true king. That's the whole purpose and the vision behind this idea of a great white throne, that there is no authority besides the authority of Jesus. And one thing that that will mean when he is revealed as the true king is that he will be a judge. Um, If you grew up in a um, kind of more liturgical church than ours, um, you would have grown up saying the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, which both have in it this line that says that Jesus will come again to what? Judge the living and the dead. And this chapter is where this idea comes from. And here we see, and we're going to talk about these two things, that Jesus comes as a judge to judge evil on one hand and on the other hand, us. Now let me ask this question. As you think about this, that Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, what sort of emotions are you feeling right now? you feel a little uncomfortable? <laughs> are you like, Man, I sh- I- it was raining and sleeting. I knew I should have stayed home today. <laughs> what, do you- what kinds of emotions are you feeling? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Why is he bringing up sins that he's already paid for? Seemingly right and we we think that this judgment is about him kind of bringing up old stuff in our lives and and bringing things back that we were like man I thought that was dealt with you know anybody who's you you read through this and you're like yeah <laughs> i I can't wait for that day <laughs> not in general yeah what yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, this is how I sort of feel. I'm, I'm uneasy when I read this. It's sort of a, a mix of fascination and fear, um, because I'm, I mean, there are this 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 idea that um, has become popular in uh, in Christian tradition, especially in the twentieth century. Um, and even like some of the terminology in this passage, this, the term burning sulfur is where we get the term fire and brimstone. And um, maybe you've heard messages that are fire and brimstone kind of turn or burn uh, messages. Now, I didn't know that this passage existed until after I became a believer, so I sort of missed that bullet. Um, I I didn't come to faith in that kind of a a message. But I do remember hearing about this after I became a Christian. So my perspective was a little bit different. I remember there was this play that was really popular uh, shortly after I was a believer um, that was going around on a tape cassette, which this kind of dates me. Um, (laughs) And and it was this play about a, a guy who was experiencing this very event. And so he comes into the, the kingdom and he's experiencing these things. Um, and, and one of the things that happens to him is he goes into this enormous stadium. And in the stadium, which is the largest thing you could possibly imagine, is everyone who's in, who, who has ever known Jesus throughout history. And they're all together. They're all in the stadium. They're all looking down at the stage at Jesus, the Lamb of God who is now enthroned. And they're worshiping him. But one of the things that happens in this kind of uh, stadium environment is that one by one, every single person who is there—which I can't imagine how long this would take—was um, brought down to stand before Jesus, and their entire lives, when they when they came before Jesus, were displayed for them to see, and not just for them, but for the entire stadium millennia of, of believers of Jesus. And every deed was put up for all to, to, to be seen. And, and what happened at the end of that experience is that all the bad things that they had done, all the sin and the wickedness was sort of burned away. But the good things that they had done were sort of refined down into either jewels or crowns. And they were given to the person at the end of this um, revelation. Revelation. And then that person would kind of turn to the crowd and and sort of hold up their jewels. And the the crowd would sort of give accolades to the people that had earned the most. And so the people that had the most crowns would get the most cheers. And, uh, And the message of this play was absolutely clear. It was get out there and earn yourself some crowns for Jesus. And I remember hearing that play, and I I was fired up. I'm like, yes, like, I want a crown. I want some jewels. Like, you know, because the whole idea was you earn these things, and then everybody worships Jesus, and you get to, like, throw your crown at Jesus' feet. And I I just thought, like, man, I want to be one of those people with something to throw. And I thought that if I didn't have something to throw at Jesus' feet, if somehow I didn't do enough to earn one of these crowns, that Jesus would somehow either be angry with me or at least, like, mildly disappointed. That he'd sort of sigh and go, Ah, well, I mean, at least you tried, you know? Now, the problem was, though, I, I, I would be fired up about this, but then after a few days... You know, I'd sort of go back to living the life that I had before I listened to the tape. And I found that I wasn't as passionate as I was the first time. And so I'd listen to it again, and I'd get fired up again, and then I'd go away, and it would sort of leak out of me every time I listened to it. And not only that, but it was like a a, a diminishing return. Every time I listened to it, it didn't have quite the same effect as it had the first time. And I thought, man, there's got to be something wrong with me. Jesus wants me to be passionate. And so when I thought about this event, this Revelation 20 and what it speaks of, this was not something that I was looking forward to. Because I, didn't, I, I, don't, I don't want to disappoint Jesus. Do you? I mean, that's, that's probably like my worst fear as a believer is that somehow Jesus would be disappointed with me. Maybe this event doesn't sound like good news to you either. Maybe you're wondering, like, is my name even in the book of life? Like, what does that all mean? Am I destined for the lake of fire? What does this all look like? Now, into this, I want to proclaim good news. And this is the good news that we're going to look at this morning. That The good news is that Jesus is coming again to extinguish evil and judge the living and the dead and this this will be the most wonderful event the world has ever known this will be the most wonderful event the world has ever known when god sets the world right once again once again and for all Jesus will be enthroned forever and will save us from the very presence of evil. Both the evil around us in the world as well as the evil in our own hearts. And the result, the result of his judgment will be eternal joy for we will no longer need to bear the weight of being a judge but we will trust that his judgment is good. That's the good news. Um... I need to explain a couple things before we kind of see this rightly. But one of the misnomers about Christianity is somehow our final destination happens to be in heaven, right? That Jesus died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven. And now when we die, we go to heaven, and that's sort of our final destination. And so you might be confused as you read this, of like, what is going on here? Biblically speaking, the final uh, the final act, if you will, of God's story is not just that we escape heaven and go or escape earth and go to heaven, but that heaven comes here. That the two realities, the two realms of where God reigns and what we know as this world, this universe, come together once again and get married. That that there is there will be a new heavens and a new earth. That Jesus will be revealed as being the the true king of this world, and that there will be no other king. Now, now one of the things that happens when he returns and he's revealed as this king, as I mentioned already, is that he will judge. Now, what does it mean to judge? Because we often think of judging as like this negative thing, right? Don't judge people. I mean, especially today. It's like. If you judge somebody else, that's like the worst sin you could possibly commit, right? If you make any judgment call over anything that somebody does or anything that some, you know, someone is, it's like you know, you, you've committed a grievous sin against them. And so we think like you, you know, if God's coming as a judge, this has to be bad news. But here, I think it's because we have the wrong definition. So what, is the, what does it mean for him to be a judge? This is what it means. That for Jesus to be a judge means that he will bring everything to light. He will bring everything to light. And, see, and what that means is when, when he brings things to light, he, he, he shines the light of the truth on them. And what happens is you, you can see, it's almost self-evident, the difference between things that are good and things that are bad, things that are evil and things that are of him. That's what he means by judge. So when, when he comes to judge the living and the dead, what that means is that he's going to come and he's going to shine a light on him and then everybody's going to be able to look at that and go, oh, now I see what's really true. And the reason that God is needs to do the work of judging is because the end of the story is that God is going to set everything right again. That, that God's primary agenda in the world is to make everything sad come untrue. It's to bring the kingdom to earth in such a way that all the corruption, all the badness, all the wickedness, all the sin gets extinguished from this place. And you can't do that work of justice without bringing things to light. Right? Right? I mean, this is the whole reason we have court proceedings. Is So when people stand before a judge, everything gets brought to light. And now in the light of that courtroom, justice can be done. And God's plan is to put things right again. And the only reason he can do that is because he's a judge who brings things to light. Now here's here's why we need to keep this in mind. And this is really super important. Keep this idea of judging, being, bringing things to light in mind. Because this, uniformly, 100% of the time, throughout Scripture, this idea of God coming as a judge is never seen as a bad thing. It's always something to be celebrated. It's something to be joyous about. Some examples. Um, Isaiah 11. Talking about Jesus coming as a judge. Okay? Okay? Um, says this, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. That's Jesus. Jesse was King David's father, and uh, Jesse had a a line of kings come after him until Israel was exiled, and it looked like that line was cut off forever. But what Isaiah is saying is, there's going to be a king who comes in the future out of Jesse's lineage, and that happens to be Jesus. What does he do? So from his roots, a a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. With righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. In that day, the root of Jesse, Jesus, will stand as a banner for the people. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. Now look look at what uh, chapter 12, verse 6 says. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of, of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. Do you see what's happening? That one of the things Jesus does is he he, he judges not just the wicked, he doesn't just bring light to, to what they're doing, he brings light to the needy. Now you... If you have the wrong definition of judging, you think, how in the world would you judge the poor? But see, that's where our definition is wrong. The definition of God's justice is to bring things to light. What's God bringing to light? The fact that the needy have a place in His kingdom. The fact that they've been oppressed and that that God hasn't forgotten them and, and that He wants to restore their fortunes and restore their place and bring them back in because they've been marginalized. It's to bring light to everything. And this isn't just something that humans will do when God judges the world. This is something creation does. Look at Psalm 98. Let the sea resound in everything that's in it, in the world, and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. I didn't know rivers had hands, but they clap. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord. For what? He comes to do what? Judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. What's God doing? He's revealing. He's bringing things to light and the world loves it because the world is under a curse. Paul even says that the world is groaning, waiting in anticipation for the Son of God to be revealed for who He is because the earth itself experiences the weight of our sin. And that's powerful, right? The earth praises God with joy because He's going to set the world right again. He's going to bring everything into the, pre- in the, into the light of His presence so that God can heal it and make it new once again. So, this is a really important perspective to keep in mind when we look at the two things that God judges in Revelation 20. Because God judges two things. Remember what I said? He judges evil. And he judges us. And that means that he's bringing things to light. Now, what does he bring to light? Let's look at the first one first and the second one second. Deal? All right. The first thing first, he judges evil. Jesus is a judge of evil. Now, evil gets uh, personified uh, in the person of Satan. And this is what it says about him. Um, verse 7 and 8 Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth Gog and Magog and and to gather them for battle now here here's where you got to help me out here because you've got a whole lot of questions what is the thousand year reign why is Satan being released what who in the world are Gog and Magog like what in the world is happening here i'm not going to answer any of those questions <laughs> Because, and there's a, because it's not the point. We can get so caught up in the weeds that we miss the real thing that God is trying to communicate. For whatever reason, Satan is allowed to wreak havoc on the, on the earth one last time. Now here's, here's one thing that we do know. But from this scene, we see clearly the nature of how Satan operates. And this is what's important. That, that Satan, what he does by nature is that he goes out to do one thing and one thing only. What is that thing? It says it. Deceive. He misleads people. Now, now here's the thing that you need to know about Satan. Is that he has no real authority on the earth. He has no kingdom. He has no power. And Because... I mean we read this in the last series, Matthew twenty eight nineteen. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to who? Him. He's got it. He's the king. So the, the only way that Satan has any sort of power, the only way he can exercise authority is by misleading people into a lie. What's that lie? Is that they can be little gods they can replace god they can gain for themselves power they can use that power to gain footholds in this world they can rise up the ladder of success and utilize their strength to 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 create security for themselves and now here's the thing by by Getting us to bite into that lie, he leads us astray. And what happens is he ends up gaining a foothold in this world. And so here's what goes on. Human beings think, oh, I can gain power. I can gain success. I can rise up the ladder. I can, I can be a political force or a financial force. And, and by doing so, I will have freedom. Guess what's happening? You're not becoming more free. You're becoming more enslaved to the, to the forces of darkness. This is the whole reason why Ephesians 6.12, Paul says this, for our struggle, meaning the church, is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. But it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Do, do, Do you catch it? The corruption that we see in this world... The exploitation, the abuse, the greed, the power mongering that is rampant in every sphere of society is there in part due to spiritual influences that are at play over people's lives as they believe the lie that they can be God. And you can always tell when it's happening. It's not a mystery, family, when this is at work in, in systems and in governments and in corporations and in people. You can tell when there is a demonic spiritual influence at work because every time it's at work, the person exercising the power looks exactly the opposite of Jesus. Every time. And it doesn't matter if they claim to be a Christian or not if they use their power for self-seeking advantage rather than self-emptying, they are a puppet of demonic forces. Anytime a system uses it, it protects its own interests rather than using its influence for the good of others, it looks the opposite of Jesus, who is a king who came with every resource and dissolved himself of his power, did not use his divine attributes for his own advantage, Philippians 2 says, but made himself nothing. I was once asked uh, the question, if God is good, why are, chi- are their children starving in the world? it's a hard question to to answer right because it's true there are still there are children who are starving and dying because of lack of nutrition because of preventable diseases and and you look at the world and you go how in the world can this be so and the reason that it's so according to scripture is because God placed the resources of the world into the hands of his image bearers. But his image bearers did not choose to acknowledge that they are the creation, that God is the creator. In fact, instead they wanted to be the creator. See, we, we were supposed to, as humans, show the rest of the world what God is like. Loving, gracious, generous, self-emptying but we don't do that you know there's enough food on the planet right now to feed the world over seven times it's not a matter of God not giving us the resources it's a matter of us believing the lie that we need more than we actually need that somehow if we give away what we have that we will be insecure Or that somehow we believe that I'm the one who's done the work to earn it and so I deserve it. And we have no concept of the fact that resources now are getting hoarded into the hands of a few who end up oppressing and neglecting the people without the power. This is the way, this is the operating system of our world. It happens in political spheres, financial spheres, social spheres. Now, what does it look like for Jesus to be judge over the world's corrupted use of power then? It gives us a picture. And this is why it's so good. Because though people are misled by Satan, I mean, think, think of this battle, right? Satan deceives the nations of the earth. They all get together. They're all... Uh, bent on securing their own power. So they're like, yep, I'm in for this fight. And it seems like they are as numerous as the seashore, right? I mean, it's like a million to one odds against God's little, I mean, John uses the word camp intentionally so that you would get the idea that there is no like wall, you know, there's no like major forces. This is a teeny tiny little group of people that looks like they're about to get overwhelmed. And what happens in the war? Is it a major fight? What happens? The moment when the forces of evil seem like they're going to overwhelm the the people that, that are following Jesus, God comes in and like that, they're gone. They are utterly wiped out. In other words, Jesus' judgment on evil, when He brings evil forces to the light of day, when He exposes them for what they are, you then realize that they don't hold a candle to God's power. See, the, the whole reason that the nations are rising up against God this one last time is because they realize their day is over; their their time is done. Now, can you see then why this would be incredibly good news? Because we, we live in a world that's full of injustice. Full of bullying. Full of violence. Full of arrogance. Full of oppression. And the idea that one day there is going to be a reckoning when a righteous judge will come and in the light of day say, no more, is incredibly good news. Especially if you're in that group, in that little tiny camp, wondering if you're going to be saved or not. This is so important for the family of God to know. Because we we operate our lives according to God's kingdom, right? We, we've been brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And you've got to know this, that if you... Choose to operate your life according to this kingdom's principles. And and what Jesus demonstrates the life of someone who is part of that kingdom looks like. If you live a life of humility and sacrifice and grace and servanthood, you are going to experience resistance from the powers of this world. But don't Fear. Because those powers have an expiration date. They're on their way out. And yeah, it, it might look like foolishness to live like Jesus in this world. And it might seem like you are outnumbered a thousand to one. But you got to know that the way of Jesus is the only way of life that's going to last for eternity. Every other way of life, every other deception, every other throne is going to get thrown into the fire forever. They're going to be revealed for what they are. See, we often overlook this aspect of Christmas, don't we? Do you think about this when you think about Christmas? You should. You should. See, we think that Christmas is all about this sweet little baby asleep in the hay. And that same baby, revelation reminds us, this sweet little one will one day sit as a judge over the creation that he's made when he enters it in human form. Here's the, here's the irony. You know who knows this, who knew this better than anyone else? Mary. You know, we sing that song, Mary, Did You Know? Did you know, you know, I mean, it's almost, I, you can tell it's not my favorite Christmas song. but um, We almost sing it patronizingly that Mary somehow missed out. That she, you know, oh, if you'd only known, Mary, you, you, you would have... You would have really enjoyed motherhood if you had only known what your son would become, you know? So it's like this. It, it, I'm going too far with this. It's, it's, I've done it now. I might as well step in it. But, I mean, those of you who are moms, don't you already feel a sense of shame that you aren't grasping hold of every single moment and squeezing out of it um like as your children are growing up because they're growing up too fast and you think, gosh, it's slipping through my fingers, it's slipping through my fingers. Don't you feel that way? And it's it's almost like we project that same sense of inadequacy onto Mary at the same time. Now, here's the thing you have to know. Mary knew better than anyone who Jesus was going to be. You want evidence? Luke 1. This is Mary's song. This is the song she sings. She says, His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud, those who have bought into the lie in their innermost thoughts. He's scattered them away and He's brought down rulers from their thrones. But He's lifted up the humble. Do you see what she's saying? She knows exactly who Jesus is. And and she's so sure of who Jesus was and would be that she speaks about these realities as if they've already occurred. Yeah, Mary knew. (laughs) She knew better than any man who existed in her day as a 16-year-old something unwed poor mother. She knew that a day was coming when everyone who uses their power for their own self-interest. For injustice and greed would be no more because there would only be one throne, the great white throne, and her son would sit upon that throne. The good news is Jesus is coming again to extinguish evil and judge the living and the dead. This will be the most wonderful event the world has ever known. When God sets the world right once and for all, Jesus will be enthroned forever and he will save us from the very presence of evil, both the evil in the world around us and in our own hearts. And the result will be eternal joy, for we will no longer need to bear the weight of being a judge, but will trust that his judgment is good. Now, what about us? We talked about evil. What does it mean for Jesus to be a judge over humanity then? Well, there, there's a couple clear things uh, when we read this passage. One, no one is going to be overlooked by, from the judgment of Jesus. He's going to bring everything and everyone to light. In fact, it, John makes note to even include people that were lost at sea, which in the ancient mind, you weren't even part of Hades if you died at sea you were sort of lost and forgotten about, never to be heard from again. It was the worst fate you could possibly experience was to be killed at sea. That's why everyone was so afraid of it. Secondly, everything that everyone has ever done is going to be preserved in God's record. And third, anyone who is not in the book of life will experience the lake of fire, which it calls the second death. Now... I, for most of us, when we read these things in, in collection with one another, we're sort of chilled to the bone. But I want to suggest, again, that this is cause for joy. For great, great joy. Uh, but the problem is that John leaves a lot to the imagination. Right? Right? And so our imaginations get pumping, and we start start to fill in gaps that aren't that that don't actually exist, with things that aren't actually there. Um, And the main question that we try to fill the gap in is, is this question of how does Jesus determine who has life and who doesn't? How does he come to a decision about who's in the book of life and who's not? and what's good and what's not so we think like is this something i should be afraid of is this something i should long for and and so i think it's helpful not just to look at revelation which is one book that john wrote but to look at let's look at other things that john wrote because it's the same author so if you if you don't know what he means in one book check out some of the other ones and see if it starts to fill in the gap okay So so one of those books, and one of the most famous places in one of those books is John 3. We know John 3.16, right? What is John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Right after that, this is what John continues to say. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So there's. think through this with me. Did Jesus come into the world to judge it or to, to condemn it? No. What did he come into the world to do? When Jesus comes back the second time, does he come into the world to condemn it? Does he, does he, is he a different person, do you think, the second time than the first time? Aha, here's the rub, right? Doesn't it feel that way? All right, so let's go back to this text. John says that there are people who are condemned already. Why? Jesus didn't come to condemn, but there are people who are condemned. So you have to ask the question, who does the condemning? Why are they condemned? What's that? Okay, great. Hold on to that, Julie. Let's keep reading. This is the verdict, John continues to say. In other words, this is the way judgment works. Light has come into the world. What's judgment? Bringing things to light. But people loved darkness instead of light because of what? Because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will will be what? Brought to the light. Revealed for what they are. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. You, you, everybody got all that. <laughs> Jesus comes into the world to save the world, not to condemn it. But there are people that are stand condemned already. So why are they condemned the answer is they condemn themselves and here's why it's not that it's not that they love or we love evil deeds it's not that we're off in darkness going ha ah, 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 you know um, I love my evil deeds more than I love God no we know our, our our deeds are evil it's not a mystery to you when you transgress God because You sense it in your soul that you have overstepped a boundary that God has created. You know you did. So what is it that you love? It's not the deed that you did. It's the darkness that you think hides that deed. Because in shame, you don't want to bring that thing into the light of God's presence. I mean, it's the same thing Adam and Eve did. Right? Right? when they ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God comes looking for them and he says, My children, where are you? And what does Adam say? We hid from you because we were afraid. We sought out the darkness. and and, And in doing so, we separated ourselves from you and we stand Condemned. Their own hearts are doing the condemning. Do you see it? Jesus comes as a judge, and when he comes as a judge, he comes to expose everything to the light. Not to condemn what we've done, but to save us from the effects of what we've done. And that, you've got to hear this clearly. That means that the only way to be condemned is to stay in darkness. It's to run from the presence of God. Just like the heavens and the earth in Revelation 20, they run from the throne. Why are they doing that? Because they've, they've been corrupted by our choices and they realize I cannot be in God's presence and so they condemn themselves by getting out of there. And it's a picture of what we do. Jesus is the light that shines on everyone, but, but everyone responds to that light differently. Some people realize that it's the light of healing and they run to it, right? God, God, he, here's what I've done. Here's what I, please save me from it. Rescue me. Forgive me. Make me new. Those are the people in the book of life. And there are people that choose the opposite of life, which is to hide in the darkness. See, walking in the light does not mean that somehow your your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. Walking in the light means that you're willing to let Jesus see who you really are. That you don't want to hide your life from his presence anymore. The good, the bad, the ugly, you don't care. Because you're willing to trust that those, even those ugly parts in the light of Jesus will not separate you from Him. In fact, the only way to separate yourself from Jesus is to hide who you are and what you've done. That's what it means for Jesus to bring judgment. It's not that He's gracious to some people and harsh and demanding to other people. It's not that he treats everyone differently. It's not that he's got his favorite kids over here and his not-so-favorite kids over there. John says he's full of grace and truth. That's who he is all the time. Always full of grace. Always full of truth. And that means that when when we come into his presence, the truth then of who we are is exposed when we're near him. There's no hiding in the light. But this is good news, isn't it? If it's Jesus who's doing the revealing, isn't this good news? Because we know, and John says, that He's full of grace, that He's come not to condemn you, but to save you. And so you don't need to hide. Because the, the only thing that's going to get exposed is your need for salvation, and salvation and healing come right on the heels of the exposure. In fact, the only thing that you and I need to fear is the deed of hiding our brokenness from the God who wants to save us from the cancer of our sin. You know, the thing that breaks my heart more than anything as a dad is when I catch my kids doing something and they try to hide it from me. And it's, it's equal parts furiating and saddening. <laughs> because I think, like, and maybe I'm giving them the wrong picture of what it means to be a dad. And when, when I catch them doing something, maybe I do respond in anger. But that's not the way God responds to us. Now, I've, I, I have wondered now for several years what might have happened in the Garden of Eden if when God came to them, Adam and Eve, shot right out of the bush and said, we're here, God. We're sorry. I did it. I was wrong. I knew I shouldn't have done it. God, help me. God, forgive me. God, make me new. Because that's the kind of... Those are the kinds of kids I want. And that's the kind of child I want to be when it comes to my relationship with God. Um, there's a bishop and theologian in the 7th century that said this. Everyone, about the judgment of Jesus, everyone is ultimately brought into the presence of divine love. But the power of love works two ways. It is a delight to some but a torment to others. And it's all about your love of darkness. Not your love of evil deeds but but. Have you convinced yourself that you need darkness to cover the things that you've done? And you don't need to do that anymore. In fact, if you continue to do that, the voice of Jesus will become as a threat to you. It will torment you rather than be a voice of love. There's this great story from the Chronicles of Narnia in the, the, one of the books, which is the prequel called The, um, the Magician's Nephew. At the very end of the book, um, these two kids, Diggory and Polly, stumble into Narnia with Diggory's uncle, Andrew. And the kids are amazed at what they see, but Andrew is a pretty dark character. Um, he's pretty self-centered and arrogant. And when he stumbles into Narnia, he realizes that there's tremendous resources here, and he tries to exploit those for his own ends. He wants power and he wants prestige. Um, but they, they stumble upon Narnia, and they're, they're there at the point when, um, when, when Narnia itself is being created. And, and what they find is that, and what you discover as the reader, sorry I'm, I'm blowing it for you, but it's 60 years old, So, um, <laughs> is that Aslan, the lion, who, who is the, the Jesus figure of the story, is singing Narnia into existence. He's singing over his creation, and as he sings about things, they, they come into being. This is a beautiful picture of the way that Jesus is the Word of God who speaks the world into existence, and this is what Aslan is doing. And, and when Diggory and Polly see that Aslan is singing, they're like, This is amazing! And they move towards him. They're, they're, they're full of fascination and wonder, they want to know more about this lion. But Uncle Andrew is too wise. In fact, Andrew knows that lions don't sing. And he convinces himself that he's not hearing singing. Every time Aslan's singing, he's like, that can't be singing. Because lions don't sing. They're fierce creatures. And so eventually, Andrew hears not singing, but growling. And over time, he becomes incredibly afraid of Aslan. And all the other creatures that Aslan creates. And his experience is completely different from the, the children. And and he ends up being so afraid in Narnia that he's unable to speak. And, and then on the other hand, you, you have Diggory who is moving closer and closer to Aslan. And at one point, he steals something. And, and he's full of shame and he brings this to the light of day. He brings it to Aslan. He asks Aslan for forgiveness. And Aslan gives uh, Diggory uh, his forgiveness. He sings over him healing and restoration for Diggory's life and soul. And uh, Polly um, is watching this happen and she thinks to herself, well, if Aslan can heal Diggory of his evil, maybe he can heal Andrew too. And so he, he, she, she goes to Aslan and she says, isn't there something that you could say? Could you sing to, to Uncle Andrew too to unfrighten him? And this is what Aslan says. No, I can't say anything to this old sinner. I cannot comfort him either. He made himself unable to hear my voice. If I spoke to him, he would hear only growlings and roarings. Oh, Adam's sons, how cleverly you defend yourselves against all that might do you good. This is the way that the judgment of Jesus works. Light comes into the world, but some people cling to their darkness more than light because they believe they need to hide their wickedness rather than bringing it into the presence of Jesus who would love nothing more than to sing his grace over it. See, it's it's easy to read Revelation 20 and think that somehow God is sadistically throwing people into a lake of fire and they're screaming, no, 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 don't do it, God. I want to be with you. But the truth is that there will be people for whom the love of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ is a greater torment than the fire itself. And they will prefer the fire to his presence because they love darkness. Jesus came to the world to save it, not to condemn it. And he hates the fact that we hate the light. Because we need the light, we need it desperately. I mean, because we're terrible judges, aren't we? I mean, we we can't even distinguish the light from the darkness in our own lives. We think when 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 stuff comes into our lives that we think is bad, we think, oh, that can never be redeemed, and yet somehow. God uses some of those terrible things for for good. There, there are some times when, when we do things that we think are amazing and we think this is going to be awesome and then it turns out that it could have been the worst thing that we've ever done. We need the truth of God's judgment. We need light in every area of our life. And the good news is that there is a day coming when we will receive that light. And And so that means that we can welcome it. We can welcome the work that He wants to do in us and we can look forward to that day with great anticipation and longing. I want to say the good news again and then we're going to respond to it. Jesus is coming again to extinguish evil and judge the living and the dead. This will be the most wonderful event the world has ever known. When God sets the world right once and for all, Jesus will be enthroned forever and will save us from the very presence of evil, both in the world and in our hearts. And the result will be eternal joy. Family, we live between two Christmases. Jesus has come, but we await and we long for, with joy, his second coming. So I want to I invite us to respond to that. Um, the truth is that Jesus isn't just coming in the future, but he's present today. And that means that we uh, have the opportunity to live under him as Lord now. And so I want to just mention a couple things and then we'll pray. Maybe today for you, you need to welcome the loving judgment of Jesus into your life. Maybe there's something going on in you that you have felt the temptation to hide from Jesus. You want to keep it in the darkness rather than bring it to light. Or you're, you're saying to yourself, I don't want to talk to God about this. I want, to, I want to kind of sort it out myself. And then I want to sort of bring God my solution. I don't want Him to see my mess. I don't want Him to invite Him into my mess. And if that's you... The judgment of Jesus is that you get to bring him into your mess. You get to ask him to be judge over it. Now, maybe it's not internal but external. Maybe there's a situation that you need to entrust to Jesus' judgment. Maybe there's something evil that is happening to you or happening in the world and it bothers you, and you're hurt by it, or you're hurt because other people are hurt, and you're angry about that thing. For me, you know, Jen mentioned earlier some of the things that are going on in Haiti, and I just think the poor of that country have suffered enough. And I'm just so sick of it. I'm so sick of the corruption in the government and nothing being done about it. And when when you're... When you see evil in the world, you can react in a couple of different ways. You can try to ignore it, or you can say, you know what, I'm going to do something about it. And I would suggest to you that both of those things are probably unhelpful ways to respond. Maybe the most helpful thing that you could do to respond is to bring it to the judgment of Jesus and just tell him how you feel about it, and invite him into it, and ask him what he wants to do, and ask him how you should respond, and tell him how you feel. And know that his judgment is better than yours. So let's entrust the judging to Jesus that he will do a good job bringing things to light. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you will come again to save the world by judging the living and the dead and extinguishing evil in us and in the world forever. We long for that day and at the same time we invite you as judge into our hearts and our lives now. We thank you that your judgment is good. In Jesus' name, amen.